Hello, you are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengemill. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown, where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series on Monday nights at 7 p.m. held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, you can check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com. This week, I'll be speaking with Patrick Grossi and Jennifer Robinson from Preservation Alliance to discuss the importance of advocating for for historic renovations and how to complete a development project in a historically conscious way. I hope you enjoy the conversation and be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com slash media. Uh, so first we have Patrick Grossi, who is the Director of Advocacy at the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia. He's a public historian and a place-based advocate. He is committed to accessibility, thinking seriously about non-traditional methods of engaging the past and the equitable and inclusive preservation of the built environment. And our next, our second guest is Jennifer Robinson, also from Preservation Alliance, and she's the Director of Preservation Services. And in this role, she manages the Preservation Easement Program, assists with development and development of educational programming, and assists property owners throughout the region with resources and guidance. Jennifer holds a Master's of Science in Historic Preservation from the University of Pennsylvania with a certificate in Urban Redevelopment and a Bachelor's Degree in Cultural Anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley. So we have two very qualified guests tonight, as you can tell by their bios, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited to introduce them and, and jump into a, a pretty interesting conversation. So Patrick and Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and if one of you just wants to quickly talk about what, or, or introduce the, the subject tonight and maybe give us a sneak peek of, of what we're gonna get into, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the, you know, concept of this is, you know, talking about so much of Germantown and, and Philadelphia's building fabric is historic, you know, in, in the sense of it's old and how can we incorporate that into your renovation work, your, um, rehab work and things to really, you know, kind of contribute to the sense of place, things like that. So that's kind of what we're focused on tonight. Yeah, and I really liked from from Patrick's uh, or bio. He said the, the term "built environment" I think is really important because you know where you live in or where all of the attendees in this call live in Germantown is is somewhere that was built long ago, and and they're still living in it. And I think that's important to realize that you're not just living in the city; you're living in a place that has a lot of significance, like as a built place. Um, so so. Uh, let's just jump right in. And my first question is, is sort of pretty general, and maybe I'll direct this at uh, Jennifer. Uh, can you give us a background to the Preservation Alliance and tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, what, what is the organization's job and, and what, what is their mission in Philadelphia? Um, I think that's probably a better question for Patrick. He's been with the organization longer, so um, he's yeah. been there way longer. So I'm going to let him handle that one. Great. You could have handled it, but I will answer 
good question. Um, so uh, the Preservation Alliance is a, uh, we are a nonprofit advocacy organization. We are celebrating our 25th year in, in 2021. We were formed in 1996, although the origins uh, go back to the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, the Alliance was the merger of two previously existing organizations. Um, and we're, we're really the only 501c3 nonprofit in the city of Philadelphia specific, whose mission is specifically devoted to historic preservation. There's a lot of organizations who we kind of work uh, alongside. There are, there are a lot of organizations locally that, that do a fair amount of preservation work, but um, we're really the only kind of capital A advocacy organization in the city, um, which is somewhat um, rare. You know, usually larger cities have at least one or two groups like ours. Um, so for, you know, the sixth largest city in the country only have one group is, is a little unique. Um, but it also gives us a kind of interesting vantage point on various projects all over the city. So advocacy is our primary mission. Um, although we also uh, manage an easement program, which Jennifer can talk more about and what that means. Uh, and we have a fair amount of public programming as well. That includes a walking tour program in the spring through the fall, which we are going to do this year um, with certain kind of safety guidelines in place. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing a lecture series right now, which we've been doing remotely, and we've had a fair amount of success with that. And our, our biggest public program is probably the Preservation Achievement Awards. That's kind of our chance every year to recognize what you know we feel is kind of the best and brightest of preservation work throughout the region. Um, also doing that remotely right now, that'll be on June 9th. So it's, it's a pretty healthy mix of advocacy, property management, and public programming. Awesome, that's awesome. And I wanna ask specifically about your easement program and uh, Jennifer, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. And more importantly, I guess for people who might not know, what does the word easement mean? <laughs> Sure. So a lot of people are familiar with the term easement in like a right of way easement or a, a utility easement. Um, and in the preservation sense, it's, uh, it's a deeded interest in the building, um, usually just the exterior. We do have some easements that include interior elements where the Preservation Alliance or the nonprofit that accepts the easement um, has a has an interest that's recorded as a deed in the long-term preservation of the building. Um, and we manage that through inspections and um, project reviews and things in exchange for providing a, a preservation easement to an organization like ours, a property owner can uh, obtain some to do that. Um, there's a lot of complexity to that. It's not a, you know, sign a piece of paper and get some money, but um, it is a financial incentive for preservation of which there are very few in this world, so. Yeah, sure, and are you seeing a lot of activity in Philadelphia with that program? Uh, has it ramped up in recent years or? Um, I would say right now we're kind of, I mean, 2020 was pretty stalled. There's a lot of conversations happening right now. We manage about 250 easements, which is large for an organization kind of of our size. Um, I don't know of another organization on the East Coast that has a similar number. So we have a lot of easements throughout the city. Mm -hmm. Definitely buildings that you all would recognize, so. Yeah, awesome. And um, you know, just 
speaking more like contextually about what, what easement means in terms of a historic preservation, um, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, but like it has to do with sustainability and kind of just like protection of, of the physical attributes of a building, right? Um, so, so how does that tie into, or, or how does sustainability tie into preservation? Like what, what makes... Uh, uh, what makes the job of preservation something that's going to make it last longer? Other than, I mean, that's sort of an obvious question. It's within the definition of preservation, um, but like environmental sustainability, how does that tie in? Tie in? So yeah, I mean, I can I can chime in on that. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, historic preservation, and by long time, I guess I'll say the last thirty to forty years, um, historic preservationists have have made the argument that that preservation is one of the greenest ways to do. The built environment, right? To do to do building and building use. Um, there's a popular phrase in the in the field that the greenest building is the one that already exists. Mm-hmm. And the the thought behind that is, is essentially a um, it's incredibly wasteful to demolish existing buildings and then add to the waste stream of building materials. Um, building use and the construction of new buildings is by most accounts, the largest um, generator of greenhouse gas emissions, even more so than you know, industry and transportation. It's, it's the buildings, it's the places we live in, and especially this past year, the places we spend most of our time in mm-hmm. um, that consume the most energy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I could imagine that there's a lot of parts of a historic or a uh, development project that could contribute to that waste and and the you know pollution and extra energy used. Um, and I like <laughs> I like the way you said it is the greenest building is one that's already standing because that that means less work that you have to put in and less energy that you have to spend. Um, so, so that's awesome. And, and uh, you know more broadly, I guess what effects can a historical or non-historical renovation have on the environment? Um, you know, like. You kind of touched on that before, but would there be any like negative um, effects to the immediate surrounding environment of a new construction project, um, you know, other than like safety or, 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 or I guess not safety, but does my question make sense? <laughs> I think it does. I mean, Jen could probably chime in on that too. I mean, certainly it depends on the, the scale of the, of the building and the context in which it's being built. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other thing I, I should mention is, it's, it's not just the, the waste that's potentially being produced by the creation of a new building. It's also the concept of what's known as embodied energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the buildings that are still standing or that are standing currently and that were built in even, you know, the 1890 or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, time, energy, materials, right, went into the creation of that building mm-hmm. and that building is still operating. So the hope, the, the, the aspiration is that you leverage all of that quote unquote, embodied energy, instead of having to consume it in a new way today. Um, but I'll, I'll see if Jen, you know, had anything else to add to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, other than the, you know, um, the factors of, you know, you're, you're continually pulling resources from the environment, if it's wood, or, you know, whatever, you're continually creating new product to put in a new construction facility when you've, you know, potentially, I, I don't want to see this, but potentially just raised a house that, you know, has, is full of bricks and wood and, you know, glass and all of that. And that's just going to go in a dumpster. Um, and then all of that material needs to be re-extracted 
you know, um, new bricks have to be created, new wood has to be milled, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, part of that. Um, there is, um, you know, there, there is, I don't want to say waste in renovating an old building. That's not what I'm trying to say, but like the, the, the byproduct of renovating a building is so much significantly less than the byproduct of tearing something down, building new. Yeah. I guess the, the way it's coming across to me is like, it's, it's huge. It's, it's recycling on a massive scale. (laughs) It's like, it's like recycling something that, that isn't even, um, you know, it's like, there's, even if there's like a ton wrong with it, you can still save <laughs> portions of it rather than taking it out of the area. And, and just can, like you said, that generating all that waste. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if you buy, if you embrace the idea of reducing and reusing and recycling in your daily life, um, I think you're, you're exactly right. We're just applying that same idea to, to buildings. Cool. That's awesome. Um, so before we get too deep into the conversation, I, I need to bring up the big money question <laughs> um, because I, I want to cut to the chase and kind of, speak up front about the fact that it's obvious that a historic renovation is going to be more expensive or, or, or a historically conscious renovation or something that really, you know, do, tries hard to salvage a lot of the historical aspects of a property is going to cost a hell of a lot more than something, you know, that you're tearing or, or something that you're just kind of slapping up cosmetic finishes on and, and getting top dollar for it. Um, so, so I really want to ask you guys why, um, from from a couple different points, but uh, maybe we can just start in general. Why is a historic res- restoration more expensive, um, and, and how are those costs made up in the long run? Um, you know, like through, through marketing and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it is more expensive. Um, you know, but that's you know also generally materials used in older buildings are better quality than what new construction is today. You know, I live in a 128-year-old house. I, there's new construction happening all over Germantown that I doubt will be there in 128 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would expect that my house will be here still. So um, materials are better. Um, you know, it, it required more carpentry and things um, when things were built because there was less automation and less... Um, you know, technology. So those things now need to be kind of more um, carefully attended to or kind of hand done in in terms of a renovation, which is more kind of labor. Um, You know, that's my perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, the other potential driver of cost is time. um, and, And that can be, you know, extended with a historic property for for a variety of reasons. Um, You may need to find a contractor or subcontractor who really specializes in a certain type of building or a a certain type of material that can add, you know, extra time to your project. If the building in question is regulated in any way, I think we'll talk more about that a little later, uh, you may have to go through an approval process, right? That you may not otherwise with a non-historic property. So, if time is money, you know, unfortunately, preservation projects often require a lot of time, um, but they're not all created equal, obviously. Um, and to Jen's point, the the kind of increased cost of the materials, um, yeah, it's a better product in most cases. Uh, it also has um, longevity, right? It's going to last longer. Yes. So that's what I was kind of getting at. And as far as how can you recover those costs, um, you know, obviously, 
you're putting more money in up front, you're creating more quality and, and uh, you know, long lasting product. Uh, th- does doing a historic renovation like that and putting that extra time like really affect your look at, or, or your brand as a developer? You know, d- does it, would you expect those, those costs to be made up in your successes down the line? Like having that reputation as someone who, who, who is really like paying attention to detail and putting in the, the hard effort to, to maintain the preservation of something. Would you guys, would you guys? So, yeah, I mean, I would answer that by just, you know, <clears throat> uh, thinking about like when you're online, right? And maybe you're looking at some real estate website mm-hmm. and clicking on the pictures the way everybody, most people do, right? And think about what jumps out at you, you know? Um, not everybody loves historic stuff. Some people love a kind of newer, more modern look. Mm-hmm. But even if that's not your cup of tea, you know, think about those details, think about those qualities that probably jump out at you when you're looking through Zillow or, or Trulia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's a fireplace still there, right? If there's original wood on the stairwell, uh, if there's original ceiling materials, whatever it might be, um, chances are, right, that's going to give you uh, an edge and, a, and obviously a very competitive market. Yeah, so I guess another way to put that is you're not turning anybody away by doing a historic. Not anything. at all. No, not at all. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I I agree that, you know, I think a house that has a well-done renovation will sell higher than a house that is, you know, all the original detail is ripped out and brand new, you know, uh, bargain materials being put in. Um, I'm not a real estate developer, you know, I've done pro formas only in my intro to real estate development class, and I've never like put my actual money behind it. But I think that, you know, through my, you know, work at the Alliance and other things, you do see a return on your investment. And there are research studies that show that, that there is more return on investment faster than a new construction project. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, so, so, so now I want to talk uh, about the development process and kind of like maybe we can walk through a few steps of that and you can uh, inform us about ways that you can like incorporate this idea of historic preservation and advocacy for historic renovations into the development process. Um, so we'll start from the very beginning and, and talk about sourcing properties. So, you know, maybe it's your first or second project and you're looking for, you're looking on MLS or, or listing sites or whatever, and you're, and you're just trying to find that perfect opportunity for historic rehabilitation. Uh, what, what should people be looking for for that? And, and how can they identify, you know, opportunities for, for historic preservation? Sure. So, you know, when I look at, um, I, I look at a lot of real estate because I like old houses and I, you know, surfer on, you know, Zillow or whatever all the time. Um, you know, I'm looking at, at, you know, what's there? What are the bones of the structure? Um, you know, and there's, there's always going to be, you know, some issues with plumbing or, you know, wiring or something in an old building. And you have to have a, a real honest evaluation of that, but what are the bones? Are they, you know, structurally sound? Are there details that are worth preserving that are intact? Um, and, you know, kind of looking at it from a, you know, what is possible standpoint. 
If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with Patrick Grossi and Jennifer Robinson from Preservation Alliance to discuss the importance of advocating for historic renovations and how to complete a development project in a historically conscious way. Thanks for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. If you can't do a home inspection and you can't really like get in there and look at those specific details and identify, you know, whether there's original structural changes or, or not, what are just some things like from a street view perspective, like, like what can you look for in a block, I guess is what I'm getting at here. Yeah. Okay. So, um, sorry, I was thinking we were already in the house. Um, no so look at, you know, kind of the rhythm of the block. What is the, what does the streetscape look like? Is it a row of houses that kind of all look about the same. A lot of houses in Germantown have their cornices covered with vinyl siding or um, added on porches or, you know, all kinds of different alterations. But what does like the rhythm of the block look like? Are there houses that don't have those alterations? So you can really see what the original fabric looks like, again, to kind of inform you of what the possibilities are Mm -hmm. there. Um, That's what, that's what I would look for, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, with historic preservation, especially in the residential market, and you know, thinking about curb appeal, you almost don't want a standout property. To Jen's point, right? Mm-hmm. You want something that looks like it belongs there and it's been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have all sorts of opportunities to add, um, you know, creature comforts on the interior, uh, you know, so that you can compete in a, a market that demands certain amenities and certain niceties of a new house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't want something that, that kind of sticks out necessarily, right? Yeah, sure. That, that sounds awfully like something uh, Ken says during our training program. He says you don't want the best property on, or the best property on the block, and you don't want the worst property on the block. You want something right in the middle. I mean, I think what you just said really emphasizes that. Um, so, so let's let's talk about like market segmentation, um, and as far as like you know, say you're looking at that that block and you're saying, okay, this is a perfect block. Um, how is that, how is having that middle property, you know, going to help you like diversify who, who you're able to sell that property to? Um, I guess like, are, do buyers in the market really care that, you know, I, I think you already, maybe already answered this question, but, but do buyers care about the historic renovation that's done on a property or do you think they're just looking for something that looks like, you know, um, sturdy and, and reliable and, and, you know, like we said, middle of the road? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, um, I should, I, don't pretend to be an expert in real estate, right? But um, I would say there's clearly a niche market that very much does care mm-hmm. and is actively looking for those sorts of details. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a much larger pool of potential buyers mm-hmm. um, who do appreciate that stuff, even if they don't realize it, right? Even if they don't realize that's maybe what they were looking for mm-hmm. when they started to go onto the market to look for a new house. Mm-hmm. Um, you will draw people in with that. Mm-hmm. and there's similarly a niche market on the other end, right? That's almost only interested in something incredibly, you know, new, sleek, almost austere, right? Almost the opposite of the the house that I'm picturing in my mind as we're having this conversation. Um, So so when you're sourcing properties and really looking for, you know, that that potential investment where you can make a a difference historically, it's not only, you know, what you could do to the property, it's who you're going to sell the property to, right? You also, you got to take that into into account, right? Not only just the renovation process, but also the selling process. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I would, you know, I mean, I know that when, you know, a a buyer or a, um, sorry, a 
renovator is looking at a property, they're looking at, you know, what are the, what are the comps going to be when this is renovated? Can I make the numbers work? That's an important part of the process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I read the changing Germantown Facebook group all the time. And when there's a bad um, flip in there, people are intense um, on that. You know, if there's someone that's done a really bad job, people are brutal. And Mm -hmm. I think that's evidence that people, you know, they may not know that they want an old property, but they know that something doesn't look right in this, you know, kind of of cheapish renovation kind of thing. Um, And people do likewise comment on good renovations. Mm -hmm. I've seen both. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to kind of just raising your brand or, or improving your brand as a developer and people have a, when they see a, a successful track record, that means you're more likely to, to have a positive outlook, right? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think of, I think of Ken and Philly office retail. I mean, I think he's trusted as a developer because he has a history of doing good work in the community. And yeah. that's, you know, people trust him mm-hmm. in, in my perception, they trust him because he's shown that he has that commitment to doing, you know, reliable work. So cool. yeah. I think it does contribute to your brand. Great. So, so let's go back to the development process and say, you, you know, you, you've been looking on MLS for properties, you found one, you say this, this is great. You think it might be, or you think it might have some really good historic bones in it, um, but you're not really sure. I understand there's like a historic register of, or, or a citywide register of historic places. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and, and, and what you need to know about that when buying a property and, and how it can help you? Um, yeah, um, definitely. If you are you know entertaining purchasing what you think might be a historic property, you definitely want to do your due diligence and make sure um, whether it is or is not listed on the on the Philadelphia Register of Historic Places. And that's the list that's managed by the city, uh, it's a city office, the Philadelphia Historical Commission. Uh, there's somewhere, there's around 12,000 buildings listed on the Philadelphia Register, um, which sounds like a lot, um, but it's actually less than 3% of the, of the structures in the city of Philadelphia. Um, ultimately what that's gonna mean for you is any scope of work that requires a building permit through LNI is gonna to have to be reviewed and approved by the Historical Commission. The vast majority of those permits are just reviewed over the counter by the staff and, and approved in office. Um, more ambitious changes, maybe you wanna add a roof deck, maybe you wanna add a, an addition on the back. Um, that in all likelihood would have to go through a public approval process through a committee. Uh, that committee makes a recommendation of approval and then has to get approved by the full historical commission. You know, I alluded to time that can sometimes come with these projects and that would be one source of added time having mm-hmm. to go through that approval process. But like I said, on the residential side of things, um, particularly single family residential, the vast majority of work that you're doing is, is gonna be handled by staff. Mm-hmm. So, so does that extend to the interior of the house or is that ju- their, their jurisdiction just remains on the exterior, right? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I should have mentioned that. We're only talking about the exterior. Uh, they don't have any authority or jurisdiction over the interior. Um, they don't have jurisdiction over paint colors, which is another common misperception of, of offices like the Historical Commission. Uh, we're talking about physical changes to the building, to the building's exterior. Right. 
Um, I think it's also important to note, Patrick and our organization did a ton of advocacy work related to some um, benefits for um, property owners and uh, developers for designated buildings. Um, and those offer additional benefits for properties that are historically designated. Great. So, so it sounds like, you know, once you find that prop, that perfect property and, and you have a suspicion there, it might be on the historic uh, commission register. You look that up and if it is, then you have a set thing you have to follow. And then if it isn't, you have to, or if it isn't, um, then it's up to your, your own kind of uh, decision-making and, and your own judgment as far as like how much uh, maintenance you want to do, right? Yeah. I mean, that's at your discretion. You know, uh, you obviously have to adhere to the zoning code or, you know, get a variance if you're going to go that route. But um, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's really the historical commission being on the Philadelphia register is really the only, the main form of the kind of oversight we're talking about. There are also what's known as neighborhood conservation overlay districts. Mm -hmm. And those are managed by the planning commission. There's not nearly as many of those. There's only about a half a dozen. Mm -hmm. um, and they're primarily intended to be, um, to set guidelines for new infill construction, right? So you have a vacant lot in an otherwise pretty stable developed neighborhood. Um, a conservation district sets some design guidelines for the kind of materials you have to use. Uh, whether it has a porch or it doesn't have a porch, you know, does it need to be set back from the street a certain amount of feet? So that's something you should be mindful of as well. Um, and then there's also the National Register of Historic Places, which, depending on the size of your project, um, could be meaningful, although it doesn't really have any oversight. Um, gotcha. And, that's, and that you can check on another, like, online register? Yeah, there's, the state has a database. It's admittedly um, pretty wonky, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'd also say, you know, anybody on this call, um, reach out to myself, reach out to Jennifer. You know, we could answer this for you very easily. Yeah, yeah great. And that, that's an uh, important point you just made. I'm going to include Jennifer and Patrick's contact information in our follow-up email tomorrow. So if there's any, you know, ongoing or, or super specific questions you might have, uh, we'll make sure you can get in contact with them. Um, so that was, that was a nice setup for the segue there, Patrick, and I, I want to talk about new construction. Um, you kind of mentioned building on a vacant lot and how that could be different. Um, I, I, I want to ask this first, is all new construction bad? Um, you know, I, I think there's this idea that, or there's an idea that if you're putting up a new construction, you're up, you have one goal and one, <laughs> one path that you're set on. Um, is that true? Is that, is that the case? I mean, uh, oh, I see a cat walking by. <laughs> um, so yeah, is, is that an unfair question? Um, is all new construction bad or are there good examples? I don't, I don't think it's an unfair question. And, you know, Jen alluded to kind of social media commentary. And I will say that, you know, I'm not sure everybody in the city is a preservationist, but what we do here pretty consistently is kind of disappointment and frustration with the quality of new construction mm -hmm. across the city. Mm -hmm. um, however, no, I don't think all construct all new construction is bad, right? Um, and there's a lot of ways in which you can build what, what we would say is build contextually, right? Or another way of thinking of that is build like you live here. Um, take some of those cues that we've been talking about. You know, what is the predominant material? Uh, used on the block or in the broader neighborhood? You know, what's the relative height of, of the buildings? 
Um, do the cornices all meet or is it a little bit more varied, you know? Um, though, to say nothing of a whole lot of, a bunch of other stuff we could talk about, but um, there's ways to make it work, right? Um, and, and, and buildings that are being built now, the good ones, you know, quote unquote, um, very well maybe the buildings we're hoping to preserve, right? In another 50 or 60 years. I mean, preservation's weird that way where it's kind of constantly uh, evolving in terms of what may or may not be worthy of preservation. Right. And um, so, so if you build non-contextually, you know, you make that three-story building on a two-story block or use this super out-of-place jarring uh, uh, texture on the outside, that, that's going to lead to what we were talking about earlier, where it's, you know, creating an uneven distribution of, of quality on the block, and that's going to, you know, offset property values and, and make it even harder to maintain in the future, right? It all like I think it it alienates neighbors, right? Um, I mean that's that's kind of the <clears throat> overriding message that we hear. You know, I'm not upset. Uh, quoting, you know, kind of quoting a, an imaginary person. I'm not upset that they're building. I just don't like the way they built it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really commonly held feeling across across the city. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jennifer, do you have anything to add about that? Oh, I was going to say, you know, one of the things twins are super common up here in our part of the city, and I see occasionally someone, you know, one half of a twin has been demolished and someone will build a new half. And it's like, they've never seen the other half of the house and they just build something super random that nothing meets up. And it, it just looks like an alien, like shot something down from space and put it right there. And, you know, again, that just sticks out in the neighborhood and it, it looks like really bad new construction. So, I mean, but look at the context. Yeah, I want to ask why. Why do you think that happens? You know, I mean, obviously to us, there's a, a jarring reaction to it. Um, but do you have any insight on like why somebody might be inclined to do that? Is it just like a, a lack of awareness? Or do, or do we not have it? Is it a big mystery? <laughs> I, I think it's a mystery. I might say, you know, they have plans that they've built in other lots mm -hmm. and they're just reusing plans, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And they're, they're purely looking at numbers and they're saying, yeah. I probably off this property in this neighborhood might as well yeah. do. I don't have to have an architect draw a new design for this. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it more often than not, right? It's expediency. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, so, so moving on, we have about five to 10 more minutes until we get into the live Q and A. And I see some people have uh, submitted questions already. So thank you to those who did that. Um, now let's talk about, you know, the, the actual, the, the, the gritty part of the process, which is, is the construction. And actually, you know, after you have, or you've acquired the house, you're, you're in there, you're, you're really getting down to the, the bones of the house. Um, you know, what are some small or big ways that you can make a difference in, in the way you're renovating it in a historically conscious way? Um, you know, it could be things as small as, and I know you're going to mention this, Jen, is smoke detectors. Um, and how important that is, but, but even on a larger scale, you know, like it's, is it all or nothing? I guess that's what I'm asking. <laughs> you know, do you have to do like a 100% historic renovation or are there things that you can, you know, pick and choose, but what accommodates to you? Um, so I would say that no one on this call and probably very few people in this, you know, in this environment are looking to create a house museum, you know, we all know there's beautiful house museums in Germantown, but that's not what we're looking to create. Um, 
you know, and that's, you know, where you would look for, you know, a perfect recreation of a period in time. I think of, you know, good preservation as, you know, maintaining the exterior building fabric, the way it was designed, maintain that, um, you know, don't, don't cover it with vinyl siding or, because that's not how it was meant to appear to the, to the street and to passersby. Um, small things, you know, inside, um, maintaining window and door trim. Don't, don't just rip it out for the sake of ripping it out if you don't have to. Um, you know, restore wood windows instead of just automatically assuming that you have to replace all of your wood windows with vinyl or whatever. Um, if you truly cannot restore a wood window, look at the pattern of the windows and, and emulate that in your new window. You know, the, the number of panes and the, the kind of proportions of those, um, because they were design decisions that were made by the architect when it was built. Um, and there's a lot of like very subtle, like, um, societal like social clues from the Victorian era in like window glass. Um, and that's, that's just something that people may not say that kind of matters to them, but it kind of just, again, it kind of creates that jarring sense when one house looks different. Um, most people, you know, on look don't necessarily see the difference between a vinyl and a wood window, but they do see if the window just doesn't match. Um, one of my personal pet peeves is when you have a um, a shaped window opening, like an arch or something, putting a square in there or, you know, a rectangle. It, it's, it looks really bad. That's my personal pet peeve. Um, and then I say start with absolute basic life safety measures of, you know, make sure that your house has smoke detectors, you know, put a fire extinguisher in it there before you sell it. Because if the building burns down, no matter what you did in terms of preservation, doesn't matter. Yeah, and that makes that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, even something as simple as that is it's like protecting protecting something without you know making too many like physical changes to it. You're still preserving it. Yeah, yeah. So I think of it as like little p preservation versus big p preservation. You know, big p preservation like. Cliveden and, you know, Stenton and things like that, you know, they're doing like perfect recreations of something. Mm -hmm. Little P preservation is, you know, do, do what you can to, you know, maintain the character and things, you know, like we've talked about. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to use the, the paint necessarily that they used in 1895. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, nor, you know, do you, uh, you know, do you have to, you know, um, <clears throat> make your project vulnerable, right? I mean, you know, if it, if it doesn't make sense to expend the kind of costs that we're talking about, you can kind of pick your battles, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it might, it might even kind of sound, sound kind of silly, but, you know, think of the, the main facade of a building as, mm -hmm. as the literal face of that building, right? What are its what are its defining features? What are the features that you'd really hope to retain and which maybe could, you know, be compromised a little bit. Yeah, and, and I'm sure they're few and far in between, but are there opportunities where you could actually save money by, by doing something historically, um, as opposed to, to like, I'm just thinking um, like more structural stuff, like rather than, than completely ripping out 
a certain section of the framing, you know, just making patches here and there is probably going to cost less than, than redoing it. Right. I mean, there's, you guys probably think of better examples, but there's probably ways you can save money by just like having that in the back of your head all the time is thinking, you know, what, what did this house used to look like however many decades ago and, and what do I want it to look like? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was going to say, you know, I think it's probably cheaper to repair a hole in a plaster wall with plaster than it is to rip out that wall and replace with all new drywall and, you know, repaint it and all of that. So. Yeah. And somebody who kind of, I guess, goes in with that mindset of a full gut rehab probably isn't, isn't thinking of that and then ends up spending more on, on something they could have cut some costs down on. Right. Gotcha. Cool. Um, okay, so, so the last thing I want to talk about uh, before we get into the Q&A here is just what opportunities does the city of Philadelphia provide for people um, to, to make these decisions and, and any financial support or anything that the city provides? Um, are there grants and programs that can help with this scope of work and these sorts of uh, decisions, or, or is that not available? What, what's the scene like right now? So the, the sad answer is there, there really are very few programs you know, for the kinds of buildings that we're talking about. Um, most uh, developers, large and small, if they're working with historic properties, um, they, they're usually leveraging a tax credit program uh, at the federal level, the historic rehabilitation tax credits. Mm -hmm. That's reserved for buildings that are listed on the National Register, and they have to be income producing. Um, and it can be admittedly a burdensome process to apply for those credits. So more often than not, um, you know, it's developers who are kind of in the multifamily, what we call adaptive reuse market, who are making the most of those tax credits. So, you know, a former school, uh, a former factory that's being converted to apartments. For that kind of project, federal tax credits work really well. Um, mm -hmm. For the single family market, uh, you could apply tax credits. I don't know that it would be worth your while, honestly. Um, you could try, and there's a state level program as well. We do have a state level tax credit program. If the building's on the National Register, um, that's a little less onerous. It's also less generous. <laughs> um, but that potentially is something to look into. But something that my office um, has you know, been kind of lobbying for for a long time is some kind of program, honestly, more so focused on owner occupants, less so um, resident, small residential developers, but there's a need there too, as obviously. Um, there's also the storefront improvement program for commercial properties. Um, more often than not, it's the owner operator who's applying for that, but there might be some you know, applicable situations if you're working with a commercial property or a mixed use property, maybe with commercial on the ground floor and residential above. Um, but there's a really glaring need um, for more support programs in the city. I mean, that's, that's undeniable. Um, we do have the tax abatement, obviously. Um, and mo more often than not, I assume the kinds of properties you guys are working with, you know, would be eligible for at least a partial abatement based on the rehab costs. Um, and it will be interesting to see what happens in about uh, six, seven months time when the abatement changes, because rehab abatements are going to stay fully abated for 10 years, whereas new residential construction um, is going to roll down, you know, 10% year over year. And, and the hope is that at least starts to address the imbalance of value between a new construction abatement and a rehab abatement. But that's kind of the best we have at the moment. And, you know, some cities like Baltimore, for example, 
have a very similar program to the 10-year tax abatement, but it's only for rehabilitation projects. It does not apply to new construction projects. Um, and likewise, I'd be really interested to hear from you, know, you, Derek, anybody else who's on tonight about what kind, you know, what would be most helpful to you and at what part of the process would it be most helpful? Yeah, I mean, it, you've certainly identified that there is a need. <laughs> There's a, a, a and, and Jen, you indicated earlier that when, when someone does something in a, um, you know, non-historically conscious way, people react and, and, and um, yeah, I've seen it myself and I react to it myself. I constantly find myself driving around pointing at buildings, say, look how terrible that is, look how terrible that is. Um, but, but and, and maybe we can end on an optimistic note, but do you guys think that more opportunities are coming for, for um, you know, smaller scale developers like this? And, and Patrick, I said, I know you said that it depends on like the tax abatement in the next, you know, in the short term. Um, but, but what, what needs to happen for, for the city to, to realize that there's, there is this need and, and that, um, you know, that they need to be providing these opportunities to, to projects on the size of, of those in this call. So, I mean, ultimately in my experience, council members, you know, members of city council kind of have the most sway in terms of land use and the built environment. And they need to hear from their constituents, right? They need to hear from their constituents that they care about preservation or it doesn't even need to be that specific. They just need to hear that they care about older buildings in their community and they want more opportunities to uh, maintain those buildings, right? And to maintain a kind of way of life that they've grown accustomed to. And that's part of the reason they still live in their neighborhood. Um, they need to hear it, right? They already hear it from us and we make that point whenever we can. Um, because that's our job, but they ultimately need to hear it from the constituents. I think there is a kind of shifting narrative, at least when it comes to owner occupants of older homes and the, the incredible need for support to keep those people in their homes, right? That's, a, that's an affordable housing argument um, and one that I think most council members are receptive to, regardless of how they feel about historic preservation. Um, so that, that's the place, that's one place to start, right? Um, identify your council there, member and make that argument. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential opportunity in what I've heard of um, the president's new infrastructure plan. He's talked a lot about renovating buildings for energy efficiency and things, um, you know, and I, I'm a little bit, you know, unclear on what that means, but that's, you know, on the conversation table now is you know the need for an investment in the built environment and i hope that that doesn't mean tear down everything old and build everything new but i don't get the impression that it does um, but that's a you know area that that's just coming into the conversation now and that i'm interested in seeing you know he's not using the term preservation yeah and that's what i think is so important about it is there's there's so many different angles that you can attack this issue with. You can attack it from the environmental sustainability side and the, the stopping global warming side of things. You can come at it from the affordable housing side of things and, and providing housing to people who don't have it through way of, of you know, revitalizing older older buildings. And then there's, um, I'm, I'm losing the third. Oh, and then the other side, the obvious side is the preservation side of things where it's, um, you know, like, like maintaining our, our city's history and, and our cultural significance of these items. Um, Thank you so much, Patrick and Jennifer, uh, for joining me tonight and taking the time to educate us about this. I think this is really, really important, and I'm, I'm glad we had the opportunity to have you guys speak. Our pleasure. Thank you. 
And that concludes my conversation with Patrick Grossi and Jennifer Robinson from Preservation Alliance to discuss the importance of advocating for historic renovations and how to complete a development project in a historically conscious way. Next week, I'll be speaking with Wayne Nemhart, who is the founder and CEO of Digital Innovation, about smart home features for your investment property and how they can benefit your finished product. The interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series, which takes place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. If you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guest, be sure to head jumpstartgermantown.com events and register for next week's Jumpinar. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, you can visit gojumpstart.org to see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thank you so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. And be sure to tune in next week.